It's Dr. Seuss Podcast. Welcome, everybody. It's Dr. Seuss Podcast number 105. I'm Dr. Stu with my uh, pal. <laughs> are are we my, still friends we're, after we're, that we're, last yeah, discussion? Yeah, we're very good. Uh, my friend Kimberly Durden. <laughs> yes, of course we are. Yes, we are. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening, for tuning in. You can catch us on drstuespodcast.com or at iTunes. You can like us on Facebook. Uh, you can link to us from my website at birthinginstincts.com or from KimberlyDurden.com. Yeah. You can email me. See, you can email me at askdrstu at gmail.com. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, that will be Renee twittering, tweeting for me. Twittering. <laughs> twittering. Uh, <laughs> at, at doctor, that's drfishbein, F-I-S-C-H-B-E-I-N.com. Welcome, Kimberly, to podcast number 105. We've had a time to take a deep breath. Oh, um, the election is probably over by now. And, and we're uh, all still alive, are we? I don't know. We we don't know because we don't know what the future <laughs> future holds. But we so hope we obviously are. you guys all know that we record the podcasts in bunches, and we're recording this one um, probably a couple weeks before it comes out because the topic we're talking about today is really timeless. It doesn't really have any sort of uh, time. It's an, it's a, it's annoying whether we talk about it today or we talked about it two weeks, <laughs> two weeks from today. True. So uh, Kimberly, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what you've got well, on your I, mind today? Because yeah, I know you've got something big been, on your mind. I've been telling you for some, quite some time that I, I, I do want to do kind of like a, I have a breastfeeding rant. And, you know, for the last, uh, I'm going on my 15th year as a board certified lactation consultant. I see Lots of family, thousands of moms and babies. Did you used to rant, before? by the way, before you became a Dr. Stu's podcast co-host? Yes, I just didn't do it on air. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> My children had maybe, to suffer. I thought maybe that was a contagious disease we'd have to talk to Sacramento about getting <laughs> a, passing a law against ranting. Is there a vaccine for ranting? I hope not. Because we'd probably be forced to get one. I'm grandfathered out by now. <laughs> But, you know, it's interesting because I, I remember when I was on your podcast some time ago, um, your previous incarnation of your podcast, and I was a guest, and I was you brought me on to talk about breastfeeding stuff. Yeah, yeah. Why? Why'd you bring me on to talk about breastfeeding stuff? Weren't you trained in breastfeeding as an OB? Breast wedding? <laughs> no. Exactly. No. Uh, we, were, we, were poorly, we, were, we were actually poorly trained in breasts, period. <laughs> Okay. We, right. You kind of like the waist down. That's what we used to say about OBs. You guys basically, are trained we, we on the said, waist oh, down. You, you have breasts, go get a mammogram. That was, <laughs> that's basically what we said. And of course, that's all changed too. We've talked about that on the podcast, previous podcasts about the changing recommendations for that. But no, we had, uh, I don't think I, you know, again, my memory, recent is not as good as it used to be, uh, my, but my ancient memory is pretty good. Right. And I don't think we had a single lecture in four years of medical school or in residency on breastfeeding. As a matter of fact, when I was a resident, uh, formula was very popular and, and gift bags put out by uh, Similac and uh, Infamil. And then were, what did you think about that as a, as a, as a resident? I mean, was that just like well, we used par to for the course? Yes, and we used, we used to give women shots of Deladumone or Delestrogen mm -hmm. to dry up their breast milk right. postpartum so right. that they wouldn't get engorged because bottle feeding and formula feeding was, was. considered... The norm. Right. This was back in the early eighties. Right in Things the early eighties. Yeah, this was the eighties. Wow. I mean, and this me was at this was at Cedar Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, which is, you know, I mean, which is a cutting edge hospital as Absolutely. far as hospitals go. I mean, they're still way behind as far as, you know, birthing, you know, things that we like to see. But they're they're more. If the word progressive can be a good word, they're they're more progressive and than a lot of hospitals. They're considered right? a, a great institution. Yeah, in honestly. our in our in our community, they are. They are. 
pretty much the gold standard, and I give them kudos for that. Right. And so, yeah, so it's interesting. And I have several friends who are pediatricians who have repeatedly reminded me this that they have never received any training in medical school, although they're trained to treat babies, children, all of that. They have no training on breastfeeding, which I always thought was like, is that even true? That sounds like an urban legend, but it's actually the truth. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. And they, and they have... Not only do they have no training in breastfeeding, but when they get out in private practice, and again, I, I can't speak for every single obstetrician, but I, but I know many, and I share space with several. I can tell you we have no interest that's in learning yeah. about breastfeeding. Yeah, because the culture has always been about, like, that's nothing for you to worry about, and you don't, that's, that's, that's just we're not even going to go there with the breast as OB. You're more, you know, waist down sort of deal with that. And yeah, no, we'll, we'll just, we'll have the lactation consultant do it, and, you know, we'll see you in six weeks. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Not to mention, um, recently I was just on one of my favorite um, uh, professional um, uh, Facebook pages, and they have a uh, professional group online called LACNET. L-A-C-T-N-E-T. And anybody who's a breastfeeding professional or is looking to become a breastfeeding professional, whether it be a lactation consultant or maybe you're a doctor, you're OB, or you're a pediatrician that wants to get more information, and um, this is a really great resource as a kind of... That's L-A-C-T-N-E-T. N-E-T. Dot com. Uh, you would find it on Facebook and you would go... Oh, it's on Facebook. And you would go to, to the dot com and you kind of have to ask to, to join this group because it is a private group um, especially for professionals and it has stood the test of time it's been around since pretty much around the time the lactation consultant uh, profession uh, became popular you know being coming a lactation consultant board certified lactation consultants it's a new newer specialty we we could put a link up to that when we when we post the facebook please do and uh, and we we post the podcast we'll put a link up and also another place to get information about lactation consultant the the profession is ilca.org which is ilca.org and that's our professional organization but this is a new specialty and it grew out of the desire for um, families um, who wanted to breastfeed their children who didn't want to have who didn't just take that bag of free formula from that their ob passed along and and use it to feed their child. They actually felt that there were benefits of breastfeeding and that they wanted to 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 make that happen for their child. Um, we had a lot of mother, we had some mother-to-mother organizations, the big one, La Leche League, that came out of this mother's desire to breastfeed her child even though there was no information available. Um, and then out of uh, La Leche League morphed the idea of a professional professional uh, credential for uh, for lactation professionals um and that's where ibclc came from so we're a newer uh credential but but ibclc is is by the way i'm just again i'm thinking about other things we've talked about is not is a private organization right it's not a government organization it is not a government organization so you're not are are you licensed by the state we are a lactation consultant we are not licensed by the state we are some folks would love licensure licensure for us and other Folks do not think that's such a great I w- idea. I would tell, I would, you know, where I lie on that. Okay, you I would, would say think, no licensure. I think the best thing that you, as lactation consultants, to do is to not, not. get licensed right. by the state, because then once you're licensed by the state, if the state decides that this is the way we're going to do things, and you do it differently, you have a chance to basically lose your livelihood yeah. by them re- revoking your license. So, yes. like what we're facing with right. our midwifery licensure, so that sort of thing. Well, anybody with a license, whether you're a hairdresser or a uh, physician or a lawyer. You know, if uh, and again, uh, I, I seem like a broken record, but if if you are, um, you know, if you're a 
a salesperson for Nordstrom's or if you work in Hollywood and you get a DWI, you can still go to work the next day. Right. But if you're a licensed professional by the state, you may right. very well lose your ability to make a li- make your livelihood. Mm-hmm. So it, it is a ball and chain. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that, you know, I think that, that they think it's going to be about safety and standards. That's why governments tend to always push for those sorts of things. But I, I think that the, the consumer can decide that for themselves. That's, right. again, my philosophy of, of personal responsibility. Right. I hear that, and I appreciate that um, that that opinion because right now we don't have licensure, and, and, and we are, you know, I, I don't know, you know, how it plays out for, for how lactation consultants want to practice right now, but I do want to talk about, basically I want to talk about some interesting things. Some of the things that are on my radar screen as a breastfeeding professional, so to speak, um, and also we talked in another podcast about, you know, we're getting a little older. We've been doing this work for quite some time. You've been doing this work for 30 plus years. Yep. And I've been doing this work for maybe 25 plus years, um, in, in particular breastfeeding well, support. you look marvelous. <laughs> I'm letting my gray grow out, so we'll see what If you, you can look marvelous on, on radio, you look marvelous. Right? <laughs> I have a face for radio. <laughs> but anyway, so, you know, some of the things that really have been challenging, some of the most challenging and most interesting uh, discussions and protocols come around, in regard to breastfeeding, have to do with infant sleep. And where is the safest place for an infant to sleep as well as uh, how should an infant posi- be positioned to provide the safest amount of sleep? So isn't, that- isn't the safest place in a plastic box in the hospital's uh, nursery? <laughs> well, it, well, you would think, according to... Uh, I mean, I've seen pictures going back in time where they have rows and rows and rows of babies in plastic boxes in nurseries, and, and you know, they all lived... Well, they. D- <laughs> well, we don't know that. We actually really, really have to look I, at I'm, that. I'm teasing. Okay, okay. but the, but the truth. I think you know that. Though. I know, I know you are. Right. But the truth of the matter is, this is really controversial. Why do you think it's controversial where a baby sleeps, especially if you are a breastfeeding parent? What makes it controversial? Uh, I don't know. What's what's seriously? You don't what, know what makes it controversial? I mean, there are there are experts who think that they know better than anybody else i don't know what makes it controversial well what what does a breast what does a baby like to do all night long do they sleep all night long 8 to no, 10 hours no they they wake every 2 to 3 hours generally to to, to feed to feed right okay or to poop right or, or to poop that's or, it. right and so <laughs> so for a parent they have to figure out how to deal with this nighttime situation of a baby that wakes every two to three hours, sometimes more than that. As a matter of fact, Dr. Nils Bergman just put out a huge, uh, uh, did a conference and posted some new information that uh, infant's feeding interval, talking about a newborn in particular's feeding interval is about an hour. In other words, sleep to feeding interval is about an hour. So some of this advice that we're giving parents to to feed their babies every three to four hours or even two to three hours um, gives parents the impression that if their baby is feeding more frequently, then there's something wrong. Go ahead. I have a question. You have a question. I'm raising my hand. Yes, I see you raising um, it. Who's Dr. Nils Bergman? Dr. Nils fill, Bergman can you fill us in on is that? a um, public health doctor who uh, is based out of South Africa. He did a majority of his work and training in Columbia, South America, working with uh, midwives of, of Columbia, South America, actually observing how they worked with preterm infants who were born. So he's credible is what you're he's saying. He's extremely credible. Good. Look okay, him so there's, up. There's, yeah. So there's a male 
male physician <laughs> who's actually credible Shut on breastfeeding. Up. All right, he's, he's a public <laughs> he's Score. a public health <laughs> physician, and but he learned, you know, what he learned from indigenous midwives in Colombia, South America, was when they had a preterm baby, they didn't put him in a box. They didn't put them in that little plastic box thing oh, that you were talking not. about. What did they do? Do you know what they did with them? This. What did they do with them? What did they do with that twenty-five-week-old baby that I, was I, born at home in the in the interior of the jungles I imagine of they probably put them skin to they skin. They put them skin to skin, right. and he observed that those babies. Are you impressed that I actually? You did. Got you, that you, one you right? did. <laughs> well, I was trying to figure out where else. Where else would you put a baby? If you're not going to put them in a box. Well, America <laughs> says put them in a box. Yeah, but you said they didn't put them in a box. But they didn't put them so in a I box. Columbia. I actually used my powers of reasoning and deduction to come up with the idea that the only other option would be like lay them on the table or put them skin to skin. <laughs> and I figured laying on the table wasn't a good choice. So. <laughs> You're so smart. Yeah, so putting the baby, the midwives would put the baby skin to skin with the, um, with the mother particularly or the other parent or another caregiver. Um, the baby really never left a caregiver's skin. Um, when the baby was on the mother's skin, they had free access to the breast. Um, they were, as, as Dr. Nils Bergman described, um, what he saw of these babies who were completely sep- who were treated completely different in in other countries where there was more modern medical interventions where where uh, premature babies would be taken into the NICU, they'd be taken away from the parent, they would not be able to be on their parents' skin, parents couldn't even touch their babies. What, you know, that was considered, that in, in some ways is still considered the best care for a preterm infant. But what he found with these low resource community, in these low resource communities where there was no NICU, was that when these preterm babies were put skin to skin on their moms and be able to have access to the breast whenever they wanted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and you can look up Nils Bergman and see what his experiences were, that he said that these babies were a different species of preterm baby. Like they had, uh, they did, their oxygen saturation was great. They fed well, they grew properly. They did so much better they, than babies who would have been separated from, from their mom. So, that, so that's fascinating. I mean, that's really fascinating because you're telling me that a baby that may have some respiratory problems yep. or baby O2 desaturations or things like that, um, well, either either they're either they're going to die because they're extremely premature. But right. if they survive, they they would probably do better. Exactly. Is the survival the same? I think the survival rate <clears throat> was better, from what I understand, from Nils Bergman's research, and which is which. At any gestational age, the survival is actually better. Not putting them in a NICU. Yes. As, yeah, well, I'd like to. You know, we got to get a reference to that article too. We do, and if you look at the documentary that was done uh, by Chantel and uh, Jennifer. Um, the IBCLC that works with uh, Dr. Jay Gordon. Uh, they did a, a documentary called Breast Milk, the documentary, I believe. Uh, they went That's to not the one that Ricky Lake and uh, Abby Epstein no, did. No, it's they, a different they one. Did one on they did one too, but, but right. Chantel's and Jennifer's is a totally different documentary. Someone email us with the name of that documentary. It's is escaping it on YouTube? Me right now. Um, I'm not, I don't think it's available on YouTube. I think you right. have to contact them directly. Excellent uh, documentary. They went to Switzerland, I believe. We'll get, we'll get Dr. Sue's podcast researchers on it, right? Yeah, right now. Yeah. We need you to it'll do this right now. Me. It'll be you and me after the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, they went and they, they went to Switzerland where the skin-to-skin practices um, are uh, built into the hospital system 
uh, for premature babies. So when you go to Switzerland, if your baby comes early, what happens is your baby doesn't go to the NICU. You get a bed, you get a room in the hospital. It's a fa- it's a queen size bed that mom and dad get in with their new with their preterm baby, and they do skin to skin, twenty four hours. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They have access to the monitoring because they're in the hospital, but they're not kind of put into these artificial environments. And the, uh, the, the outcomes of these situations, I mean, this is considered the utmost of optimal care. This is, this is utterly fascinating to me because obviously in our country, this would never be allowed to take place because people, we don't have the choice of choosing not to use the NICU. I mean, exactly. if, a, if a parent tried to say, I don't want my baby in the NICU, I don't want my 30-week baby in the NICU, I want my 30-week baby on my skin, Child Protective Services would be in that room like before you batted your eyelashes. Absolutely. So what countries, again, was this uh, happening Switzerland. in? Switzerland. Um, this is happening um, in their hospitals, and I believe in Germany and some hospitals as well, with See, this stuff should outcomes. be front-page news. It should be. But why it, I, isn't it? I haven't seen any of this even in, you know, in... You know, I do get the, the major uh, OBGYN journals. Of course, it probably wouldn't be in OBGYN journals because it's... You guys pedi- don't talk about... Well, it's more pediatric stuff oh, anyway. So, yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I don't hear about this sort of thing. Right. It's fascinating. Yeah. So, so over the years since I've been uh, a board-certified lactation consultant, some of the, the things that we've already knew about skin-to-skin, the things that we were hearing about skin-to-skin that were not in the mainstream, and skin-to-skin... Is, has, had not been happening in our hospitals for not just preterm babies, but not even full-term babies. I mean, newborn separation after birth is pretty standard of care um, across the board for a very long time. But because of researchers like Dr. Nils Bergman, who are bringing this information to the table, we, you know, it, in many circles, it, it could not be ignored. People started really advocating for more, not only not only more institutions that employ things like skin to skin, which is shown to increase rates of breastfeeding, but other uh, breastfeeding friendly behaviors that are not just, not just about promoting or, or, or helping breastfeeding happen, but also help, help newborn infant health just be, be more optimal because we're basing the newborn infant health on the physiology of such practices, skin to skin and, and interrupted time with the parent and, exclusive breastfeeding and no introduction of formula and things like that and less medically necessary. We're, we're able to show that these, there are real benefits. And so there's been a push to create what we call ba- baby-friendly hospitals by an organization that is a baby-friendly hospital initiative, which was formed by uh, UNICEF. Yeah, is, that, is that different than the mother baby friendly? Is mother baby friendly is comes out of the Coalition for Improving Maternity Services, right. which is Kim's, And that's the mother end. Right, and then baby friendly is the baby end. Okay, okay. So they're different organizations. They're different organizations, and they kind of can be. They kind of go together, but they are different organizations. Got it. Okay. And baby friendly international, uh, baby friendly hospital initiative is actually inter- international. I'm not so sure about mother friendly, um, uh, Kim's coalition. But anyway, so it, you've heard the term baby friendly hospital. Have you heard the term baby friendly hospital? Um. You know, I, I might be confusing it with mother baby friendly right, hospital. Right. I don't think that I've heard the term. I don't. See, I don't. I haven't seen a billboard or anything. You well, know, one of the first hospitals. I don't, I don't necessarily read hospital advertising. <laughs> well, what, well, you know what? But the, the, but the thing is, in, in some ways, you know, and, and when people who know about it's, baby friendly hospitals, it is a buzzword to look. Yeah, for. and I don't. And again, because I also right. don't go to the hospital except in rare circumstances. 
Um, and you're certainly not going to deliver like your baby. You're not having a baby, so you're not looking at those things. Uh, but how for, do you know? <laughs> so, so if you were to have not necessarily done yet, if you were to have another child, it would probably be a good idea to consider a baby-friendly hospital as a place if you were to be having a hospital birth. Like, like I would have a hospital birth. If, if, if you were to have a hospital yeah, birth. Yeah, that would be, well, I, you know, it wouldn't be my decision ultimately, obviously, if I ever had another baby. But, but, but I, if you I can't, had to. I can't imagine. If you had to. I can't to. imagine if, unless, unless there was a medical reason for it, I can't imagine me ever going near a hospital. But you know what the funny thing is about this baby-friendly hospital initiative? The, uh, Boston, uh, Boston Hospital was one of the first hospitals that st- uh, really pushed for the baby-friendly hospital initiative in, in their institution. And one of the things that's required um, as a step to becoming baby friendly is to get rid of all donated formula to actually ask the, the institution actually has to buy their own formula. So why do you think this would be? Wait, wait, wait. Say that again. Baby friendly hospitals as have to get rid of. They have to get rid of accepting free formula right. from formula companies. Right. So why do you think they would include that as a part of the initiative? Oh, so that they don't have formula laying around. They don't have formula laying around. Right. They're not influenced by the formula company's particular advertising, marketing. They're not yeah, they're just using... Any, any, even the appearance of conflict of interest or financial gain from from that... So, yeah, that obviously. Well, but that, as you said, when you were a resident, the form- formula companies would come and give you all these goodie bags of formula to give to... To give to the... the yeah, to we, your, they even came to our office to give... Uh, like diaper bags with, exactly. the, with the thing with all with all kinds of freebies and coupons and stuff in it to give out to these people. They still do. Absolutely, they we still just, do. You know, I just have nothing to do with that. Right, but if you're a baby friendly hospital, you actually can't, you can't accept those. That. Right. So no, I have heard of that. By the yes. way, yes, exactly. So, so by the way, sometimes on Doctor Stu's podcast, Doctor, St- I mean, I'm I'm usually like talking about things that that are this, this is this is great for me, Kimberly, because. You're teaching me. You're, I'm learning here, and I hope our listeners are, are getting the same sort of education, because I would tell you that that maybe they know more than I do about this subject. Which they're going to be emailing me. you, but but this is great because I I don't know any of this exists, and uh, so keep going because so what, I, we what, haven't even gotten to the rant part yet. Well, the <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things is that when you can imagine the pushback if you let's say the hospital that you did your residency in suddenly decided. We're not going to accept any more formula donations from Similac, let's say, or from Mead Johnson. So what kind of, what would that, ha- it's not saying that you can't have formula in your hospital because obviously there are some babies who, number one, their parents are going to choose to formula feed them for whatever reason, maybe a medical reason, maybe not. Number two, um, you know, you, you may have a baby that needs formula for some reason. So you yes. want to have it on hand, right? But what would, if a formula, if a hospital cannot accept formula donations, then that means I'll just answer the question I was going to ask you. Is they're <laughs> going to have to buy the yeah, formula, right? right? But when you buy the formula, you're going to take a better look at actually how much formula you really need to use uh, because you're not getting it for free anymore. And you find that you actually use less if you put some other things into place, um, namely supportive, you know, supporting breastfeeding, supporting skin to skin, supporting behaviors and getting rid of uh protocols and procedures that are unnecessary or, or that could interfere with the normal course of breastfeeding uh, from birth on. Get what I'm saying? So so baby-friendly hospital initiative in the United States has been around for a while now. I don't know the exact amount of years, and maybe one of our listeners could uh, could let us know. But 
um, it is becoming like the gold standard for hospitals around the country to become baby friendly. And it's interesting because recently in the last couple of, of months, I'm starting to see this backlash on baby friendly. And it's so interesting. Backlash, backlash from where? Ba- backlash from some of the doctors that are part of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Okay, um, so organized medicine. Organized medicine. We're starting to have some backlash for the baby friendly. And in the last couple of months, I actually... Now, is this backlash based on something that they've observed happening or is it backlash based on the fact that they sort of don't like losing control mm-hmm. um well this is what, what we're which try- is sort of what happens when when we go to things like when 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 home birthing parents or even hospital birthing parents don't want hepatitis vaccine or don't exactly. want you know the pediatricians get all upset about that this is something that i mean i think pretty much this day and age unless there's a medical reason or a health you know, uh, public health reason not to not to breastfeed. That I think everyone agrees that breastfeeding is pretty much better for babies. Or is that not true? Well, is there a, I mean, is there a faction out there that doesn't that doesn't think that? Well, there's obviously plenty of plenty of research to show us for the long term that any amount of breast milk breastfeeding that a baby gets is beneficial. Are there babies who may not be able to be breastfed from their mom? Let's say yes. Yeah, of course. Of there course, are. but. Yeah. As it is, it is well acknowledged by everyone from formula companies all the way down to pediatricians, all the way down to even a parent who decides not to breastfeed. That breastfeeding is considered the optimal nutrition for babies. I mean, abs- ba- breast so, breast milk is a species specific. So, in, in hospitals that need that, unless a baby has a medical reason to be to be bottle, I mean, to have formula, mm-hmm. which is very rare, there might could be some sort of allergy or stomach problem or something. Right, I don't even know, mm-hmm. but. Then why why wouldn't hospitals instead of buying formula why wouldn't hospitals get into the donor milk business? Hey, that's a whole that's a whole another topic Did I, of oh, conversation. Right, so I didn't so, mean to go there. I because I, I, I want to hear there, but it's I a really hear great what question. you have to say. Well, why you think these organizations are are why you think that suddenly they're seeing articles and things about about baby friendly that are negative? What's well, the what's the what's the motivation? What's happening? Well. There seems to be reports of, uh, there are reports of something called sudden unexplained infant collapse that is happening typically within the first five days of life. Most of these babies in the hospital, we're talking about hospital-born babies, practicing some of the uh, the steps of practicing some of the baby-friendly policies such as skin-to-skin, unlimited skin-to-skin, you know, exclusive breastfeeding, et cetera. Um, and we're finding reports are coming out that there are babies who are just on mom's chest and they just stop breathing or they die suddenly and where the the what we're hearing is that because of the increase of baby friendly hospitals and baby friendly practices that there is an increase in sudden unexplained infant collapse okay an so, increase as we know on Dr. Sue's podcast, means shit, okay? <laughs> you have to know what the denominator is. You have to, the denominator matters. We've talked about this before. So if something happens one in a million and then it happens twice, one in 500,000 doesn't mean anything. So have you looked at these things? Are they, is there statistical significance to what they're saying or are they just like the, like we talked about in the last podcast, was there one case of mumps in 40,000 students at... Uh, at San Diego State University, and we're suddenly uh, all, all, all up in arms about at it. At first glance, there does seem to be a higher, uh, somewhat of a high number. Um, I am just starting to read through um, the different uh, arguments for and against baby friendly. Um, and so at, and so at first glance, 
from these first things that I'm reading, it seems like, wow, they had a lot of sudden inf- infant, uh, sun- sudden unexplained infant collapse or postnatal collapse at this hospital in this time period. Now, are we looking at all the factors? Are we getting all the information? What I've read so far doesn't kind of give me the full picture of what was going on. One of the things that we do understand, though, and one of the ways that Baby Friendly International has responded is to say that, you know, not all the steps of uh, all of the uh, steps are being followed to implement baby friendly uh, hospital initiative into the hospital safely. So one of the steps that has to be taken into consideration and one of the most expensive steps is to train all health professionals in the hospital about what? Breastfeeding, you know? And so that is an expensive step to train, to get all your nurses to become IBCLCs. How about your physicians? How about your pediatricians? How about, you know, is that actually being done? The answer is no. Well, but does does the uh, baby friendly people actually expect that to be done? That because is that, one of the steps. Yeah, but that's a you know that that sort of expectation may be unreasonable. However, you know, baby friendly practices are being implemented without a staff that's fully trained on what is normal. What does normal look like when we're not sticking a bottle in the baby's mouth every couple of hours? Do you understand what I'm saying, Stu? No, I, I definitely understand what you're saying, and it, it's sort of it's sort of comparing apples and oranges. It's comparing the standardized way things have always been done in the hospital and are sort of set to something that that has ver- varying factors that that are that are not well controlled. I liken this by the way to when we compare the rate of neonatal death or infant injury from cesarean section versus breech delivery. Right. I mean, uh, I won't I won't digress on this very much because we've talked about it before, but right. but just briefly, um Cesarean section for a for a, a for a breech baby is other than one that's in you know half the way out the vagina already mm-hmm. is basically a standardized procedure. Everything's done the same, no matter where you are. Right. Whereas breech delivery is, is there's, there's a so lot many variables. Factors. Yeah, you can't even control all of them, and exactly. so you may have worse outcomes simply because exactly. you're comparing apples to oranges. I agree with you. So is and also, sim- it is a symptom of that. And also, what I what I found as a lactation professional is I am alarmed, and I've spoke about it on the, your podcast before about the baby. That I that first of all I work in private practice, so somebody finds me through a referral or a friend, or they see something about me online, and they contact me. Um, it's not a doctor calling me saying, "Come see my client." It's not, you know, it's it's the the mom finds me and she's home now with her baby, and she's having problems, and she has the wherewithal to reach out, and she may also have the money to pay me, which is um, you without those things is a huge barrier to getting the support you need because it's not built in. So I've got, I've seen so many babies and in particular in the last, I don't know, for some reason in the last six months, I mean, I've seen babies and I talked about it on one of your podcasts that I am frightened to think about what would have happened if that mom didn't reach out for this outside intervention, namely me. I have seen babies that are rapidly losing weight and their doctors are like, I'll see you in two weeks. And the mom is on her own in between them. I have, I have, been happy to be there and happily even offer or suggest to the mother that she start supplemental feeding. I'm a breastfeeding advocate, but if I see a starving baby, we have got to feed the baby. And what bothers me is just this lack of, 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 of follow through for these clients that are com- patients, clients that are coming out of the hospital and aren't seeing their OB for another six weeks. And then when they do go back to the OB, the OB is not going to talk to them about breasts. But if they go to their pediatricians two days, po- uh, two weeks postpartum, so many things can happen in those two weeks. Not yep. to mention the pediatricians who are now going to give them breastfeeding advice have gotten no training on breastfeeding. None. And that is a 
huge problem. Here I am able to help so many women because of the expertise that I have in breastfeeding. Um, and another thing that, and this is my rant, the, the, the advice that I hear that parents are given on how to deal with these breastfeeding problems, all these different breastfeeding problems, the advice that I hear that is given to them by the pediatrician, they are, it is outrageous advice. It is clear that they actually don't know what can they're you, talking can about. Us, can you give the listeners some examples of the crazy, because <sighs> we've talked about some of the crazy things they say about VBAC and breach and stuff. This is, again, I would love to, you know, th this sort of makes it interesting for me. By the way, before you get to do that, I just have one quick question. Are the, uh, are the w babies that, are, uh, that they're talking about with sudden infant collapse, are they term babies or are, um, they, the, or are they, they premature babies? From, from the folks that are talking about um, um, the b pushing back against uh, breastfeeding. Uh, the, yeah, those the, people. That I don't know. I need to read further. I, I think that they, they're, they're trying to say that this is happening to full-term babies and, and we're focusing on full-term babies yeah, who shouldn't be to. having any problems. I will tell you another thing, just real quickly, another aside is that when we're doing skin-to-skin, back to lack of training, they find that the sudden infant collapse is happening when parents are doing skin-to-skin -skin with their baby in a prone position. So prone meaning like what? They're laying on, on flat their on their back, yeah. and their infant is on their body, on the but back. the parent's body is flat. Oh. That is actually a contraindication to skin-to-skin. So this is another. So the mother should be. They should, should be sitting be, up. She at should like be sitting up. Thirty, like forty-five degree angle. Exactly. Right, right. Exactly. So the babies who are dying, it's not the skin to skin. It looks as if it's this lack of education on what's the proper positioning for doing skin to skin with a newborn infant. Yeah, and again, I just don't see this epidemic of dying babies. Um, I, you know, I haven't. I've not heard about this. You'd think. Again, with the hysteria that goes on when something happens, you'd think there'd, there'd be more news coverage of this. So I always, I'm always suspicious when, when we see organizations suddenly become hysterical about something. So I just want to go really quickly because we're, we're, you know, we're, I'm but going wanna, on and on. You're but going to talk about uh, what some of the dumb things you, say, you hear people say because I want to hear that. You know, uh, I have heard, I mean, first of all, I've had many pediatricians will say, well, show me, well, first of all, I've seen many pediatricians who will give mothers breastfeeding advice and never, ad, never once see what the, what the baby is doing at the breast, like how the mother is breastfeeding. They don't watch. They right. don't watch. Right. But, but for those who do watch, they don't know what they're looking for. They do not know how to help a mom get it. I've seen plenty of women who said, my pediatrician watched me breastfeed. Why does it still hurt? Because a pediatrician has no training on breastfeeding. They don't even know how to I help mean, the, get the, a baby correctly latched on the breast. That's generally true. I mean, there are probably are some pediatricians who have taken an interest in it. But that's but, something but they've done on they're, their they're, own. They're few and Oh, yeah. They don't have any training in their... In their um, in the residency program So the other, I just want to segue a little bit because the AA, AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, just came out with a new guideline on safe sleep. And that's so controversial in the breastfeeding community. And Stu, you should know this. This should be on your radar screen. <laughs> uh, but I know there's a lot of stuff on your radar screen. Well, but this, this, this what's does interesting... Do, does this have to do with the thing I sent you, the email I sent you? Or well, it does. You sent me an email from Wall Street Journal where they said that, that parents who co-sleep have for the first six months, have better, have success. better success with breastfeeding. They breastfeed longer. And you said to me, duh. duh. And I agree. <laughs> yeah. duh. duh. But do you know that on the very same on the very same turn, the American Academy of Pediatrics actually um, discourages, pra practically bans babies sleeping at the breast. We have a wonderful researcher, Dr. James McKenna at a University of Notre Dame, who completely debunks what the AAP is recommending to all parents in the United States and has the re uh, information, evidence, and research to, to, to prove it, but he is like an outcast. He is an outcast to the AAPA. They do not like him. They will not share his recommendations and his findings of not only is 
is bed sharing. Why can I relate to that? Is bed sharing <laughs> safe when you make it a safe space? For instance, I say to my parents, if I if you put your baby in a car seat upside down, with that and drive around, would that mean that your baby is safe? Safe. No. And if you're co-bedding, you're co-sleeping with a baby, and you're doing it in an you unsafe that, way. Has, has that actually been studied? Has that yes, actually been studied? Yes, it has been studied. No, no. Has babies upside down in a car seat been studied? <laughs> Look. <laughs> How can you say that? There's no study that says that it's not safe. No, I'm just so so. But what he, what we have studied is what makes what Dr. McKenna has studied <laughs> it, if, it, for the last thirty years is what makes co-bedding safe. By the way, co-bedding or sleeping with your baby next to you as a breastfeeding mom is as old as what Methuselah is as old as the beginning of time. I mean, it's not new. This is nothing. There's nothing new under the sun. So, since when did it become the most dangerous thing? On the planet, and when you talk about regulations, you know, a couple years ago there was a campaign against co-sleeping that targeted low-income families, um, and made there was these public service ads where they would show a parent, a baby in a bed next to an axe, and they would say that if you sleep with your next to your baby in your bed, it's just like you're they're sleeping next to an axe, and who and when you talk about it's not that's not true regulations, (laughs) parents are at danger of being arrested, so CPS being called so, uh, if they're found to be sleeping so, next to So let me ask baby. a question. Are the, are the crib companies behind all this, uh, ab- ab- about this uh, anti-co-sleeping hmm. stuff? <laughs> I'm scratching no, I'm, my, my head. We believe so. The Consumer are Product you, Safety I was Commission. I that up. No. The Consumer Product oh Safety God. Commission, the Juvenile Products uh, Commission, we do have evidence that they are in support of their products. Because um, I know, I know. But, when, when, and don't even get me, you want to talk about a rant, because I'm about to talk about your boy, Dr. Harvey Karp. My boy? Your boy, Dr. Harvey Karp. <laughs> okay. You know, there's this new product just, that he, he know, just put out. I'm disavowing any of this stuff that's, that she's saying Dr. right now. Dr. Karp, listen, I'm a little, I'm upset with you, because he just put out a new product. Him, He and his wife, you can look on Facebook, check it out. He and his wife spent millions of dollars working with MIT researchers to produce a $1,200 bassinet that simulates the movements of like what a parent's arms would do in terms of soothing a baby in a, you know, MIT researched, you know, infant sleep protected environment. It is a bassinet that you strap your baby into on their back so they cannot move. And he says that this is going to give parents that extra hour of sleep at night at a $1,200 price tag because today's parents really need their sleep. Well, I think the government should buy that for every man, woman, and child. Yeah. So, but when we talk about the evidence for safe infants... Don't, don't, don't people have a right to have a motorized yes, crib they do. next to their bed? Yes, they Isn't do. Isn't that a human right? <laughs> they have a right, John? if they would like. But I'm afraid that this is going to become the gold standard for infant sleep, um, and parents are going to be struggling to come up with $1,200 or maybe there'll be a government subsidy to, like I hope you not. said, yeah. so yeah, that parents can I hope can that that doesn't go that direction. So we have, we have Dr. Th- James. That would be outrageous. It would, it, would, it would be... We have Dr. James McKenna who's been studying yep, infant sleep for 30, years. for 30 years and he has put out guidelines to show us what is the safest way to do that and yet the AMP, the problem that the AAP has is we don't want to tell parents that it's safe to sleep next to their infants. So what has happened is we've had an increase in sudden infant death syndrome, mostly because when parents here don't put the baby in the bed next to them, they then go to the armchair with the baby and fall asleep. Or they go to the sofa with the baby and fall asleep. And what we know is that those surfaces are 
much more dangerous than a soft mattress even on a bed. So in summary, because we're, we're sort of running a little bit out of time, uh, what would you tell the listeners is the take-home message from all this when they start to hear these sorts of things uh, coming out that, that co-sleeping is... I mean, th- there's been things on co-sleeping plus or minus for years, but but I think right now the trend is that a lot of a lot of our clients I know uh, co-sleep. Absolutely. We co-slept with, and this was 19 years ago. We mm-hmm. co-slept. I mean, we spent a lot of money on a crib, and it was probably the you, you most wasted money we ever had Same because here. basically all we did was store stuff on it. <laughs> exactly. It became a big you know closet or a shelf. Well, I don't think that parents should be criminalized for putting their baby next to them well, in I the bed. Well, I don't think that either. And I think that parents should be given the full story and not just the partial story of what the AAP wants to hear. And I think that it's a hard time to be a parent because we have to tease out all this information. And you're good. And you're Is that your theme music, Stu? No, no that's outside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's, some, there's somebody playing a, a boombox right outside the window here. Dr. Stu's podcast. But this is the thing. It's the things that really make it challenging to to give recommendations as a professional or to give suggestions. On the other, on the other hand, it, it, uh, the last thing I'm going to say about this is that, you know, like you said, it's been as old as Methuselah. People have been doing this for a long time. The sudden infant death syndrome is extremely rare. This uh, sudden infant collapse I've never even heard of before. Um, what I'm thinking is that this all may be much ado about nothing, and that's typical because that's the way our society works now is we, you know, we have one bad outcome or... You know, the way it often works is one bad outcome to somebody who is a politically connected, then it starts right. to it starts to go. It, it, that's right. how it gets entered into the system, and then right. things happen, and right. then you get uh, twelve hundred dollar uh, pieces of machinery exactly. to to do what what <laughs> to you, handle mother, that mother and fathers have been doing for, for centuries. centuries. And also, but I but the other thing I just want to follow up with is one of the things that you don't see as an OB when you don't see. What I see when I go work with parents who are now home in their environment and they're scared to do normal behaviors, to interact with their infants in a normal way because reports and hospitals are, hospital employees are telling them never do this, never do this and not giving them the full picture so that they can make an informed choice. Right. So informed choice is the, is the uh, mantra of Dr. Stu's podcast. We always want people to have the right of informed choice and refusal. And so when you go into a situation where somebody is very black and white, uh, especially when it comes to the medical profession or when it comes to childbirth or, or, or pediatrics and stuff like that, always realize that there is no black and white. There and is so no you, black need and to, white. you need to um, ask, ask questions. You need to do your own research. Yes. Just, as, just as Kimberly and I are going to be doing more on this, and maybe we'll bring it up in a future podcast when we find out, I think that it's really um, reasonable to do whatever you're doing right now. Do it. But, but breastfeeding is really important. And we don't get any education on it. Both pediatricians and obstetricians don't. Uh, if you have the uh, the affinity or the ability to have a lactation consultant, uh, especially with it's your first baby, but this can be even with your second or third or fourth baby, it makes perfect sense to do that because if you can start off doing it right, it's really easy. If you start off doing it wrong and you end up with mastitis or cracked nipples or whatever else, then it becomes uh, something that you're more likely to quit. And unfortunately, then the mom and, and, and the mothers internalize that they've done something wrong or they were not adequate. And and the problem that I have is that our medical professionals that we look to for information that we are we are seeing as the folks that are going to help guide us in this in this process don't have the information to to give us what we need. And I think that. 
that our medical professionals should be honest about that. Our pediatricians should say, I don't know anything yeah, about breastfeeding. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with saying you don't know. I don't know. Yep. Instead of acting like you I do. I think I said I don't know a few times on this podcast <laughs> already. So anyway, right. listen, I want to thank uh, Kimberly for uh, that. Kimberly, your rants are much more gentle than my rants, just so <laughs> you know. Uh, but I think it's really a very important topic, and we'll be discussing more about this. And in future podcasts, we're going to be talking a little bit about VBAC. We haven't done VBAC in a while, and we've gotten some listener. We had a, a nice letter from a lady in the Philippines who had some questions for us. Uh, oh, no, it was Canada. That was Canada. Philippines was about the manistats. Yes. And we'll be talking about uh, why manistats are so different from like the wax paper and things about, not, not that wax paper, but the wax paper <laughs> about the perils of home birth. We'll be doing that in the future on Dr. Stu's podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been Dr. Stu's podcast number 105. You can find us at uh, drstuespodcast.com and email us at askdrstu at gmail.com. Thank you, Kimberly. Bye, y'all. <laughs>